It's early September 2020. You're listening to the sound of 12,000 tonnes worth of ship caught in the middle of a typhoon. And this vessel, a giant of a ship, like a skyscraper lying on its side, is called Gulf Livestock One. It's carrying 43 crew and nearly 6,000 cows, ferrying them from New Zealand to China. And what you're hearing is footage captured by one of the crew on board. Beyond the creaking, it's actually quite eerily silent for what's going on. If you could see it, you'd see the bow of this huge ship jutting high into the sky, the water vanishing from sight around it and then crashing back down again. These walls of water batter it on all sides. By this point, the crew are starting to panic. They're sending messages to their friends and their family. One tells a friend that they're all starting to assemble at the highest point of the boat, the safest place. They're on this mammoth vessel that suddenly seems just too fragile in the giant ocean. And there are questions in the air. Why did this ship, carrying thousands of live animals, sail straight into the eye of a typhoon? Why did the ship seem to have safety deficiencies and why didn't it turn back or around? Well, to answer this question, I'm going to take you on a journey to our Wild West where giant vessels regularly sink or go missing nearly a hundred a year and where barely anyone notices, where investigations into what went wrong and why are almost non-existent where the truth is lost somewhere deep in the ocean and answers and accountability are buried under obscurity and deception. I'm Basha Cummings and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I was on the ship with Will, the ship that we went on together to China prior to him going on this next one. Obviously, with the pandemic that hit, we had worked on boats prior to this together on the live export boats. And with the pandemic hitting, obviously, none of his tours were going. I was meant to be going overseas. So we decided to go back to sea again. So we did a trip together and we went to China. This is Harry Morrison. Now he works as a social worker, but he used to work on these live export ships, which is a big industry in Australia and New Zealand. And that's how he met the guy who would go on to become his best mate, Will Mainprize. Will was, in Harry's words, a wild guy. 
He was 27 and guided trips around the Tasmanian outback and he was this survivalist. He knew how to handle himself and he had these mad adventures like cycling solo across Pakistan. He had a sister, Emily, who was just 18 months older than him, more like a twin, she would say, and a girlfriend, too, who would publish these beautiful Instagram posts of the two of them in exotic parts of the world, Will looking happy and young and carefree, mountain babe alert, one caption read, that sort of thing. And he was, he was very good looking, long wavy hair, very Australian. But like all of us, Will had to change his plans when the pandemic hit. Obviously, we couldn't fly back during the pandemic, so we came back on the boat together. And then we went back to Darwin and were living and working there for a little while until Will was going to go out on another a guiding trip, but then that got cancelled due to interstate restrictions within Australia. So then he uh, decided to go back on a boat. A boat came through at the last minute and, yeah, he went on that. And that last-minute boat was the Gulf Livestock One. Will was one of two Australians on board. There were also two New Zealanders and the rest of the 39 crew were from the Philippines. Harry and Will both worked as stockmen, the person who makes sure that the cattle are being properly looked after. It's hard to describe the day on a boat, but, you know, <clears throat> it is pretty busy when you've got, you know, the biggest boat I've ever been on has had 27,000 cattle. So you can imagine how many animals are on there. But, you know, normally it's around 5,000 cattle on each boat. So... You've got the crew, the Filipino crew, who will feed the cattle, often by hand, and then they'll water, like they make sure the waters are done, they'll clean the pens, all those kind of things. And then we're just, you know, checking the cattle, if there's any illnesses, if there's any lamenesses, anything like that. You just make sure the cattle, the cattle's welfare is maintained and, like, upheld and everyone's safe on the boat. 27,000 cattle at sea. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? And there are lots of fierce critics of this industry where conditions for the animals are often just horrendous, packed into pens. And by Harry's account, it was gruelling and often really lonely work. I mean, it's pretty isolating. You're out at sea. Normally, in normal circumstances, the longest you're at sea is, you know, 26 days at a time. But it varies on which country you go to. The boats do have limited internet now, but when we started, uh, there was no internet or no phone or anything like that. So, you know, you'd really be out there on your own, not so much on your own, but isolated from the rest of society. The crew are mainly Filipino. Sometimes there's Pakistani crews. They do, you know, up to nine-month contracts at a time, so they're on there consistently for nine months. For the Filipinos, some of those men would support 13, 14 people on their wage. So for them, it's a huge thing. But yeah, you go out to sea to work, I guess. You're working pretty long hours normally. So yeah. But Will was up for another trip. So he joined the vessel. It departed from Napier Port in New Zealand on the 14th of August 2020, bound for the port of Jingtang in China on the 3rd of September, nearly a three-week journey. And the boat was owned by a company called Gulf Navigation Holdings, but it was crewed by another company and the commercial manager was another company entirely. But we'll come back to all of that. After getting to China, Will was thinking of maybe moving to Egypt with his girlfriend or maybe going to Uruguay to work in the export industry over there. So far, so normal. Harry and Will were texting, but even really early on, something was wrong. 
We're not even a day out of port and the engine is fucked, Will wrote on the 15th of August. The rest of the messages were jokey, but there was a tension in there too. But the ship carried on. It journeyed north, up past Papua New Guinea, skirting Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands and into the Philippine Sea. Harry and Will stayed in touch until, just two days before the ship was due to reach China, the boat sailed right into the path of a typhoon, which had been brewing for days. There had been warnings issued by the Korean, Japanese and Philippines meteorological authorities. It was going to be a big one. Typhoon Maisak is approaching South Korea and weather forecasters are warning that it might become one of the strongest typhoons to hit the country. And now Maisak is a major typhoon in the works across this region. Winds sustained at 175 kilometers per hour. Heavy rain and powerful winds are battering South Korea as Typhoon Maisak works its way up from the country's largest island. Typhoon Maisak slammed into South Korea last Wednesday night, leaving a trail of damages behind it as it swept northward. The next time that Harry heard from Will, it was the night of the 1st of September and Will was scared. Really, really scared. You know, I was obviously talking to Will by what's happened, you know, three days out from this typhoon. You know, he was sending me picture messages being like, man, you know, what's going on? This is going to be crazy. We're hitting a typhoon and engine isn't going at full capacity. Like, I'm pretty scared. Will texted Harry. We're in the middle of a typhoon and engine control room is taking on water. He messaged again. Engine is off and we are floating sideways in a huge sea. The ship's captain, a man called Dante Adog, who was 34 years old, was also scared. He was messaging his wife in the Philippines as the weather worsened. The typhoon is so strong up to now, he said. I'm praying for the typhoon to stop. He complained of headaches and dizziness from the waves. He told her also that the engine had stopped after taking on water. And like a plane failing at altitude, these men knew that their lives were in grave danger. And by this point, late on the 1st of September, Gulf Livestock One was mostly alone in a vast stretch of sea. It would would have been, you know, so scary. That's, you know, it's just hard to imagine how large the swell would have been. I, I saw a short video taken by, I think it was Lucas Order, just showing the boat moving in the water. And it, it's it's hard to imagine how terrifying that would have been watching that. Yeah. And to be honest, like seeing a video it's like taking a photo of the stars, you know, when you can never get that photo of the stars and it never get, gives it justice. It's honestly like that. I, I've been in some large swell before and, you know, it is a lot larger than what a video can ever capture. And for this situation, I'm sure it's just even more extreme. Mm-hmm. And so you, you said that, that Will was sending you messages telling you that he was scared and that things weren't quite right. When did you realise that something was going really wrong? Uh, he sent a video of, like, the engine room taking on water. Really safe. Really, really safe. So he sent that video across to me on uh, WhatsApp and, you know, he was just saying, like, mate, what's going on, like, you know, the engine room's taking on water, like we're going into a typhoon and we've got one engine going. Um, yeah, he just said, I'm scared, I'm really scared. And for Will to say that, like, you know, Will's ridden a push bike through Pakistan 
camping on it by himself for three months you know there's you know I've never heard him say he's scared before and for him to hear me say that I was like it really must be something serious Overnight, in the early morning of the 2nd of September, at around 1.40am Tokyo time, the Gulf Livestock One issued a distress call. It was sent from around 100 nautical miles west of the Amami archipelago, a chain of islands that snaked down under Japan, and the last frontier before this great blue expanse of the Pacific Ocean, the largest, deepest ocean in the world, covering around 30% of the planet. And there they were, being battered by waters named, ironically, by Ferdinand Magellan, the Portuguese explorer, after the word for peaceful. All the other boats in the same region had diverted as the typhoon intensified. They'd huddled along the edges of the Chinese mainland. Now, there's something called the Saffir-Simpson scale that measures the intensity of a typhoon. And if you look at the path of Typhoon Maysak, you can see it hurtling down from northern Russia, down towards Japan and South Korea, the scale turning redder and redder as the wind and the turbulence gets worse. And where the scale gets reddest, where the typhoon was at its deadliest, was right where Gulf Livestock One was. So the question is, why did this ship head straight into the eye of a deadly storm. Let's start uh, with you just introducing yourself. Sure. My name is Ian Urbina. I'm a journalist and I also run the Outlaw Ocean Project, which is a non-profit journalism organization that focuses on lawlessness at sea and specifically human rights, labor and environmental abuses offshore around the world. Ian is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist focusing on environmental and human rights crimes at sea. For decades, he's investigated what he describes as this dystopian place, the world's oceans, a place home to dark inhumanities and where the rule of law, often so solid on land, he writes, is fluid at sea, if it's to be found at all. Some 80% of the world's goods are transported by sea, even more recently in the pandemic. Ships are getting bigger and bigger and they're loading more and more containers and more and more cattle or sheep. But that growth has not been accompanied by a system of accountability to match this supersized industry. 951 large vessels have sank in the last 10 years and there were 41 losses in 2019, the most recent figures that we could get. Of those, 15 were large cargo ships. 41 boats, that's a lot. Imagine 41 Airbuses, the most popular cargo plane, crashing in a year. And it became clear to me as I learned more about Gulf Livestock One that what went wrong with the ship started long, long before it headed out to sea. It's a complicated history, but it's one that really gives you such a revealing glimpse into this strange, dark world. The ship was built back in 2002 in Germany, originally as a container vessel, and it was first called the Maersk Waterford, after the largest shipping company in the world. And then, in 2006, it changed its name to the Dana Hollandia and was registered three times in three different jurisdictions, flagged, as it's known, first in Antigua, then in Germany, and then in Cyprus. 
And then it changed its name again. From 2012 to 2015, it sailed under the name the Cetus J and was still registered in Cyprus until 2015 when it was renamed the Rame, re-registered in Panama, and then in 2019, bear with me, it was again renamed, this time as the Gulf Livestock One. And at this moment, 2019, it was owned by a company called Gulf Navigation Holdings, which was based in the UAE, in Dubai, but it was still flagged in Panama. And still stay with me, but Gulf Navigation Holdings' chairman is Sheikh Tayab bin Tahnoum bin Mohammed Al-Nayan, whose other ventures have included creating a paradise garden in Abu Dhabi, which won two Guinness World Records for having the biggest number of hanging baskets in the world. So far, so weird. And if all of this sounds a bit mad and confusing, well, it is. But it's the basis for a whole industry. Yeah, so historically, vessels had a home port. And that home port could be the UK, somewhere in the UK or the US or Fiji or Thailand or wherever. And those vessels would record that home port on the back of the ship and they would fly the flag of their home port nation. And therefore, the laws that would apply on that vessel when the vessel was in national waters or international waters, i.e. beyond the 200-mile mark from shore, would be the laws of of that home port nation. But in the 20th century, mid-20th century, late-20th century, flags of convenience or open registries became more common. And what that meant was that the laws that would apply on your vessel which come, which are dictated or determined by the flag you fly, why does it have to be your home port? Why can't it be the place that's offering the best deal? Ian explained how even landlocked countries started offering up their flags to maritime vessels. And one of the biggest open registries for this, yeah, you guessed it, is Panama. Th- th- this created a sort of race to the bottom whereby nations began selling their flag registry licenses to ships and advertising, hey, we bother you less, we have less rules and we're cheaper. But when things go awry, you start realizing that the company is paying the business that runs Liberian's flag to give them the license so that Liberian flag registry, that company is not inclined to be really aggressive at doing anything that would annoy their clients. So there's a conflict of interest here, nor are they really inclined to have the right staff to, to do the governance, oversight, policing duties that the flag registry supposedly is meant to do. You know, someone dies or is murdered or is raped or whatever, there's a claim of illegal fishing or dumping or whatever, arms trafficking on the ship. The flag registry has all the information and has the responsibility to investigate. But when press or lawyers or government come to the flag registry and say, hey, give us the information, have you investigated, did you go check on board, all these things, they say, look, we're not at liberty to give you any of that information because we have to ask our client whether we can hand that over to you. That That's not governance. you know. That, and so this is the, the core problem of how flag registries in general are flawed. There are some good flag registries that are, are decently well run, and, and um, but, but there are a lot of really, really shady ones. And, and that's where you find a lot of the worst abuses. They're flying those flags. In the case of Gulf Livestock One, we know that since 2002, the ship has had five names, four flag changes, and that's not unusual. But that's not all. 
While the ship was owned by that UAE-based company, it was managed and crewed by a company in Germany called Markonsult Schiffalt GmbH. But the commercial manager was a Jordan-based company called Hijazi and Gauche Company. Can you imagine for a moment this level of complexity for an aeroplane? No, me neither. And for Ian, none of this is that surprising. Name changes are a really well-worn tactic in the shipping industry, and while we don't know why Gulf Livestock One changed its name so many times, there could be all sorts of reasons. Well, often what happens is a ship owner or ship operator will want to clear their clear the ship's name by flagging it to a new flag registry, and often when they do that, they will change the name of the vessel. And in doing those two things, you you often are able to, through weird quirks of maritime law, are able to wash the ship of any liens, of any financial debt that sit on, that sort of have the ship as collateral. So if I sold, you know, $20,000 worth of fuel to this vessel, and then the vessel left without paying its bill, and then three months later, I, through, you know, hiring the right firm had found that the vessel was pulling into a Singapore port. And so I was going to call the Singapore port officials and say, hey, there's a lien, there's debt on that vessel, and they didn't pay. So when they come in, could you lock them down and hold them until they pay up? The, the, the problem is if that vessel, when it arrives to Singapore, is flagged to a different nation and, and has a different name, then even if you know it's the same vessel, your ability to actually get the Singapore, I'm just using this as an example, but the Singapore port officials to lock it down goes out the window because they don't have the jurisdiction to lock down the ship that owes you money because that's not the same ship. And are these laws quite arcane? Yes, they are arcane. They're contradictory. They're murky. There are a few of them. To the extent that they even function at all, the, the huge problem is enforcement, right? So even good laws, strong laws, as they exist offshore, very often are toothless in the end because there isn't a police force that patrols this space. The high seas, the international waters portion of the space, is really a weird sort of complicated jurisdiction where it belongs to everyone and no one. And it gets only worse when you're talking not about the property of the ship, meaning the cargo or the ship itself. Those laws, for obvious kind of property law reasons, you know, there's a lot of money at stake, are broken, but even better than the laws that pertain to the people on the ship. The labor laws on these vessels are even more arcane and toothless. Back in the sea in the early morning of the 2nd of September, things had turned catastrophic. One crew member said the ship was taking on a lot of water, the boat was heavily leaning to one side, and the crew were desperately trying to dump as much of it as they could, pumping out water from the starboard side to bring the boat back up. Then there was a blackout, lasting for about a minute. It's the dead of night, and the emergency lights came on, and over the radios, the instruction came, all hands wear your life jacket. But the crew knew it was too late. The waves were too high. By this point, a crew member said two life rafts were already in the water. The waves were continuing to batter the boat until one pushed this giant vessel, 134 metres long, 20 metres wide, onto its side. It was the end of the Gulf Livestock One's battle against the storm. 
so he lost touch with Will. And then there was like no official report or anything, but uh, a friend that's worked in the industry rang me up the next day and said, look, heard that the boat went down. It put out a distress call and it's gone down and it's not been seen again. By Wednesday afternoon, the ship's disappearance was being widely reported in the press. The Gulf Livestock One sent a distress call as Typhoon Maisak pummeled the region with strong winds. The sinking comes as the powerful typhoon drenched the Korean peninsula, killing at least two people. And at first, even when the news was confirmed, Harry wasn't that worried yet. It was a waiting game, you know. We thought that, you know, these boats are pretty well equipped with all this kind of... with the safety stuff, you know, they have life rafts, they have what you would think is all this tracking device, you know, you think they would have alerted the Japanese Coast Guard because they were in Japanese waters. And we were just hoping that they would have made it onto a life raft or even better, a lifeboat. And it would just be a matter of time until they were found. And there was good reason for having hope. That first night after capsizing, on Wednesday the 2nd of September, a man called Eduardo Sereno, the vessel's chief officer, was pulled out of the water alive. There's this amazing, haunting footage that shows him sitting on the floor of a rescue boat, wrapped in a yellow blanket, having just been plucked out of this absolutely ferocious water in the darkness by a Japanese rescue team. And he's freezing, shivering, his head in his hands. And he asks, am I the only one? I'm only one. Yes, yes, yes. No other one. I'm so Within 48 hours, two more of the 43-man crew had been found alive. But the week following the ship sinking was a difficult one. One of the men rescued from the water later died, and there were photos from the Japanese rescue effort showing the horrible, bloated bodies of cows with their legs in the air surrounded by bits of wreckage in the water. Stuff was being recovered. But then, on Saturday, three days after the boat capsized and just 24 hours after the men had been pulled from the water, the Japanese authorities had to suspend their search because on the horizon, another typhoon was looming and the weather was just getting impossible. And to the families, who still had hope, this was a huge blow. There were still three lifeboats and a life raft out there in the water, and it was, in their eyes, far too soon to give up. When the weather settled a week later, the Japanese Coast Guard said that the rescue effort would start up again, but no longer full-time. The families were dumbfounded. They looked to the response to the downing of aeroplanes to MH17, and they had assumed that a similar no-holds-barred effort would apply in this case. But it wasn't so. One by one, family members started making pleas. To who? To anyone, really, to help find their loved ones. This is the wife of another stockman, Emma Order, and she made this video on the 13th of September. I'm here today with our son, Theodore, who's only six months old and faces the possibility of never knowing his father. Each moment is a living nightmare for us. We don't know whether our Lucas is going to come home through the door or whether he's actually gone forever. 
The current situation is tremendously overwhelming. However, I'm not alone as there are 39 other families feeling the heart-wrenching pain this tragedy is causing, including fellow Australians, the main prize family, whose son and brother, William, is also missing, along with two New Zealanders. To the Japanese Coast Guard, your ongoing search inspires our hope. I beg you to help us keep the search going so that this nightmare can end for all of us. Over the coming days, more and more families released similar videos. Please save my daddy and his girl. Let them come home to us. But it wasn't just that the search had been abandoned too soon. The whole mission was hampered by a total lack of coordination and collaboration. There was, you know, liaising with them and with the Japanese Coast Guard. So the Japanese Coast Guard did the search. So I can't remember, I think they did three or four days and then another typhoon came in and they had to suspend the search and then they went back out to do it. They'd also been hit by the typhoon as well. So they obviously limited on their resources. You know, there, there was just not enough evidence to suggest that the search should be over. It's like more needed to be done, you know, particularly when there was, I think, 39 men still unaccounted for. And a, a large part of that was that the life rafts automatically get deployed from these boats when the boats sink. So there's still four life rafts that were unaccounted for. So, you know, we needed to, until we, though, though they had been found and they'd been found empty or until, like, you know, a really decent search had been done to do that, it still should be presumed that there's people out there on the boat. And the Australian government offered assistance. The Japanese Coast Guard said that they didn't need it. And it just seemed like there was a not a huge amount of search that was done. I just don't know why there wasn't greater response from Australia or New Zealand or Philippines or, you know, Taiwan or China where the survivors could have potentially been. Really upset at the response from the authorities, Harry and some of the other families took matters into their own hands. We sort of started a Facebook, I started a Facebook group about what to do and then it just really rapidly grew and... Then we started getting a lot of press coverage and, you know, we got started getting in a lot of awareness and then we started to go fund me. We raised funds. We, and then we got a crew out there doing different sorts of searches and we had experts. It was amazing the amount of people that volunteered to come and assist, you know, and these were marine experts, they were consultants. And this wasn't just like our own knowledge, but by this point, by the time we raised the money, we knew that there was a high survivability rate. For a whole month after official efforts had effectively been given up, Harry spearheaded a vast private search operation. Because for them, survivability still looked positive. A raft and a lifeboat were still to be found. There was a US naval base nearby. But after weeks of searching, of chartering planes, of examining satellite imagery, Harry and the group had to make a really difficult decision. We weren't just aimlessly searching, you know, we knew if they did get it onto a life raft, that the life rafts have water stores, they have fishing equipment, they have, you know, all these kind of things. So they do have the ability to keep people alive for a, a, an extended period of time. But then it, it just got to the point where the search area was too large and with a singular small, I guess, charity organisation that had just been founded for this search, it, we just couldn't do it anymore. Mm. 
And that moment to stop must have been incredibly difficult. Yeah, it was. It was really difficult, you know, particularly when we had so much evidence and so much kind of external support to suggest that there was still a high survivability rate of someone out there. And it was a really difficult call to say that that's it, that's enough, like we can't do any more. At the end of a Herculean private effort to recover the bodies, 40 men were still missing, presumed dead at sea. And what little we really know is this. The ship's last known speed was 8.3 knots, around 15 kilometres per hour. And its last known coordinates appear to be almost slap bang in the middle of the Pacific, far, far away from where it should have been. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. Safe, efficient and reliable railways help to keep us all connected. Thanks to Network Rail. Yet, maintenance on the railways is a risky and sometimes fatal business. At Network Rail, two previous attempts to invigorate its track worker safety programmes had failed, leaving employees feeling sceptical that the organisation could ever get railway safety right. Since 2019, EY teams have worked with Network Rail to deliver a transformation that improved safety protocols and changed employee behaviour around safety. Network Rail Rail Hub, a new digital safety platform and app, eliminated inaccurate paper trails and worked offline, so it could be used by workers in remote locations. Since the platform was introduced, near misses affecting maintenance workers on the railways have fallen by 40%. Read the full story at ey.com. After the Gulf Livestock One sank, attention started to focus on the ship itself and its numerous problems. According to information passed to us by members of the private search and rescue effort, several reports over the past three years showed that the ship had defects. A report from Indonesian authorities on a website called Equasis, which collates ship safety information, logged issues with the ship's propulsion and auxiliary machinery. The issues included, quote, deficiencies with the propulsion main engine, and it tallies with what Will texted Harry at the beginning of his trip. 
Another 2019 report by the Australian government said that one of the ship's departures was delayed for a week because of, quote, stability and navigation issues identified by the Australian Maritime Safety Authority. Other reports allegedly suggested that the ship had had issues with its navigation system in 2019 and that even it didn't have up-to-date charts. And then in its previous lives, under the name the Rame, anchored off the Turkish coast in 2018, a report on the website Fleetmon suggested that local residents had been concerned about the ship being anchored there because livestock on one of its previous voyages had been infected with anthrax. Now, we don't know if any or all of these problems had been fixed before the trip from New Zealand to China, But Harry alleges that when the ship left Queensland to begin its journey, when Will was on it, it already had problems with its engine. They had one engine that was not performing at 100%, if not performing at all. That's a huge issue because A, the boat's going slower and B, it's not going to hit, sort of have the force to, to cut through large swell if it comes. For Ian, none of this was surprising. The fact that it happened doesn't surprise me based on my sense of norms. The fact that that's a norm surprises me. (laughs) And it is a norm whereby even when port um, inspectors find irregularities, the, the way that this industry has been set up is really very heavily leaning toward the ship owners, you know, and the ship operators and not leaning towards the public good, the public safety or the workers. So, for example, there's mandatory insurance that in most instances has to be kept to protect the cargo. Only recently was mild versions of mandatory insurance required to be kept for a sliver of a scenario in which seafarers got trapped or stuck. So like for the longest time, the cargo was better protected than the crew. There is one kernel of hope. Since 2002, the year that the ship was built, every boat over a certain size must have something called a voyage data recorder, a shipping version of a black box that usually records between 12 to 48 hours of data, things like the ship's position, its speed, its direction, radar data, alarm data, but also, crucially, all conversations taking place on the navigation bridge, the equivalent of the cockpit, via a series of microphones. By the 14th of September, 11 days after the boat sank, there were really loud calls for a retrieval operation to rescue the VDR. New Zealand ministers came on board. But when we asked the New Zealand government whether they had launched that effort to find the recorder, they said, nope, it's Japan's responsibility, not ours. And so to this day, it hasn't been found. And so the question is, where should accountability really lie? So I think a lot of the responsibilities comes to the ship owners, of whom have taken absolutely no responsibility. They didn't assist financially with the search whatsoever. None of us that were trying to conduct this private search could even get contact with them. They had you know, different companies, different company names. It was a nightmare to try and even find out who to contact. So it's really shocking, yeah. Now, of course, we've put all of our questions and allegations to the ship's owners, Gulf Navigation Holdings, and in a brief email, they told us that an official investigation is being carried out and that they continue to assist the relevant authorities. But 
It's impossible not to make a comparison here to the airline industry, an industry built modelling itself on the naval rules and customs. If it was a plane that had gone down with 43 crew, the wreckage would have been searched for, the black box retrieved, and we would have had answers. It's hard not to think that what happened to Gulf Livestock 1 had all the mystery and suspicion of the story of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, that passenger jet that just disappeared in 2014, inspiring a huge news interest and a giant collaborative search for the wreckage. It's just that somehow Gulf Livestock 1 had none of that global news coverage and none of the interest. And I have to confess that at the time, it passed me by too. And this is when Harry got to what he thinks might be at the heart of the problem. A problem that, well, implicates really all of us. The only difference is with it is obviously I think it comes down to a, a racial discrimination against Filipinos and the fact that there was only four or two Australians and two New Zealanders on the boat. That's what it is. It's, it's a discrimination that's from the world over that happens exactly on the shipping industry, you know. No one cares about these individuals that spend nine months at sea. They're the sole breadwinner for 13 people and then they all get lost at sea. No one seems to care about them. Ian, in his reporting of distance fishing vessels and of the outlaw ocean, says that the treatment of workers at sea is just a brutal reflection of who and what we value and why. I don't think it's distinct to the industry. I do think it is a, a dark truism the world over that lives are, are valued differently. And young, developing world migrant workers are not held to the same value that, you know, a Maersk, Swedish, you know, Danish shipping captain on a multi-billion dollar insured vessel is. A villager from Kalibo, Philippines, you know, who's 21 and never been offshore, never traveled, and now he's on a sinking vessel, doesn't speak English, maybe doesn't know who they would contact if they wanted to try to get help and bring pressure on the ship owners. Even if they did, they wouldn't have the money to try to pay for the costs of getting a lawyer or you know, all these barriers mean the consequences that these lives are valued very differently. Whether it's the ship's numerous identities or this thread of safety deficiencies or the decision to sail through a typhoon or the meagre and disjointed search operation after, every single step of this story is an illustration of a booming industry going, it seems, rogue. And Ian is clear on what needs to be done. All ships should be required to keep their transponders on at all times, no matter what. You can't go dark. You can't disappear, no matter who you are. Because the minute you can disappear, it becomes easy to do whatever you want. I personally think that information should also be public. So academics, lawyers, regulators in developed, undeveloped, uh, developing nations, journalists, Uh, should be able to figure out what's going on in that space. There should be stricter requirements when it comes to almost, again, like the aeronautics industry. Where are you going? When are you going to get there? What do you have on board? What's your crew manifest? Do folks have contracts? And people other than the company and their registry should be able to see them. All these things, more transparency on the whole supply chain of everything that moves across that space would suddenly really cut out a huge portion of the of the dark behavior and nothing for me was more damning than what harry told me at the end of our conversation have you ever had any contact from the ship's owners or any sort of recognition of what's happened no 
nothing. And they have been emailed and so many times, so, so many times, but nothing. And neither has the family? No, not to my knowledge. No, I don't think so. So I do know, I did read the other day that the ship did get an insurance payout. The owner of the ship did get an insurance payout. And uh, I did also know that the family members of the, this family, uh, the people, the survivors got a payout, the Filipino. So there was two Filipino survivors and they got paid out. But I know that the ship owners got paid out for an insurance on the ship. And I know that none of the other families with lost family members have been remunerated in any way. All but one of the numerous companies that we contacted replied to us or even acknowledged us. And it's difficult to find any contact information beyond just generic emails. Everything is distant and remote. Harry told me how difficult it was to get a response from Gulf Livestock One's owners. Well, we got one, but it expresses the bare minimum. It said that they had been in touch with the crew's families and that they had been, quote, offered their contractual benefits. Then they go on to say that they extend their heartfelt condolences for those who have sadly passed in this tragic accident. Our thoughts and prayers remain with the families. But we've called them a lot, or rather we've tried to call them, and each time they didn't pick up. And it's it's fitting, isn't it? Because this is a story about a lawlessness that feeds globalisation, upon which the ease of our everyday lives, our goods and our access to stuff, all rests on and answers of what really happened to the crew and 6,000 live animals on Gulf Livestock One have just drowned under the weight of unaccountability and deliberate obscurity. Another of Will's friends said that everyone was still coming to terms with what had happened. It's not the 18th century, he said. Ships don't just go missing in storms. And in fact, he has a theory. He said... That he's out there, Will, on a desert island, just sitting there, being like, hey, this is actually pretty good. Thank you for calling the Gulf Navigation Group. Our office is closed now. We work from Sunday to Thursday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Sorry, no one is available to answer the call. To leave a message, press 1. To call the operator, press 2. Thanks for listening this week and I'd like to say a special thank you to Harry Morrison for telling us the story of his dear friend. This episode was produced by Matt Russell and as ever, as I say every week, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a review, leave us some feedback and there's also something else that you can do if you find what we do interesting. The newsroom where I work, which is called Tortoise, is a membership organisation which means that you can join us and you can get more involved in our stories and our ideas And, crucially, you can listen to our podcasts ad-free. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend for a half-price discount. Just use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A 50. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. 
This podcast is sponsored by EY. The risks posed by AI range from bias in decision-making to misinformation and the misuse of personal information, all at an unprecedented scale. Nearly a quarter of UK businesses understand that the regulatory landscape is changing fast and nearly half are tracking new regulatory guidance to be responsive to emerging best practice. The EY Responsible AI Service helps organisations innovate safely, providing confidence that AI and generative AI technologies are developed and managed ethically, transparently and sustainably, and that potential regulatory and reputational risks are identified and mitigated. Discover how you can create a better working world with AI by going to ey.ai. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.